on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. In Western society, the number 13, is, it's true that they are still making elevators today that don't have uh, 13 floors. And of course, in Vegas, I don't think any of the hotels, no. very few of the hotels have, have a 13th floor. Of course, they, they do. It's just called the 14th floor. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> in Spanish, its name means the meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, lost wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 52 of the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Thanks for joining me on board this podcast journey to what I like to think of as the best city in the world, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Before we get into this episode of the show, I want to thank my guest from the last episode of the podcast, Heather Ferris of Vegas Aces, for hopping on to talk about cheating in the casino. We covered a lot of ground in that episode, including the methods that cheaters try to use, what happens to cheaters if they're caught, how to count cards, and when skill crosses the line and becomes cheating. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the episode yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 51, Cheating the Odds, or head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. All right, on to the show. Whether we like to admit it or not, I think everyone is a little bit superstitious to some degree. And I don't think there's anywhere in the world where that superstitious nature is on display more than in Las Vegas. Whether it's a lucky shirt that you always wear when you're playing blackjack, or tapping the buttons in a certain order when playing video poker, or rubbing the side of the slot machine between spins, or not using $50 bills for gambling. And these are just a few examples of things I've seen on my trips to Vegas. But is there any science behind superstition? To answer that question, I decided to bring in a professional. Stuart Vise is a behavioral scientist, a teacher, and a writer. He's also an expert on superstition and irrational behavior. He's been quoted in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post, and he's appeared on CBS Sunday Morning, CNN International, PBS NewsHour, and NPR's Science Friday. I wanted to get his take on the world of superstitions. We discussed some of the most common superstitions and their origins. We chatted about whether or not certain cultures are more superstitious than others. And we talked about some famous superstitions in the world of sports, music, and theater. Please enjoy my conversation with Stuart Vise. <laughs> First of all, I want to say a big thank you for for taking the time to to jump on the podcast with me today. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to be here. If there's something I can add, I, I'm happy to do it. Well, I just felt like, I, I mean, it's a podcast about Las Vegas where people are constantly trying to get lucky and win big. And 
every once in a while when I'm walking through the casino, I see the people that are tapping the slot machine, they're rubbing the screen, and, and, I, and I think to myself, do they really have to be rubbing the screen or is that just a thing that they're doing? Like, is it a touch screen? Are they just touching it for superstition? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure it out myself. So I thought it would be a good idea to have somebody who, who is a expert on superstitions to come on the show and, and talk a little bit about that. So, so here we are. First off, let's find out a little bit about yourself. I'd like to learn about your background, your education, and what got you interested in studying superstitions. That last part actually is connected in in a way to Las Vegas and slot machines. But but my background is that I am a psychologist, uh, but I'm quick to add that I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm a, a, a scientific experimental psychologist. I'm interested in uh, what average people do and why they do it. Uh, and so I, I went the usual route and have a PhD. And, uh, and for many years I taught uh, at a liberal arts college uh, and, uh, and I enjoyed that very much. Uh, and I did some research while I was there, but I'm now uh, just a writer and spend all my time writing and uh, which I, which I enjoy very much. And, and, I got into this. I mean, superstition uh, has been very good to me. I I don't. It it's it started quite a long time ago, and I I would never have expected that that it would become a big as big a part of my career as it has. But but I was in graduate school many years ago, and I read an article. This is one of those moments that graduate students sometimes have because we're young and enthusiastic. But I read an article. And I just, it was so, uh, you know, appealing to me and exciting that I ran into the, the office of my advisor and said, you know, this is really strange behavior these people are doing in this study. We should drop everything and study that. And, uh, and my professor sort of patted me on the head and said, no, you're going to continue doing what, what I've been telling you to do. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I didn't get to study it at that time. But, but later on, uh, when I was a faculty member and had my own lab, I was able to study it. And it was a situation where it was a very simple sort of uh, video game situation where people were uh, sitting at a computer screen and their job was to move a little uh, circle from the upper left-hand corner of a little matrix of squares down to the lower right-hand corner of the matrix, and they would get a point. It was like the dumbest, simplest video game in the world, except that the, the, the students or the, the people who were in the study didn't know how it worked before they started, and they had to figure it out on their own. And in this experiment that I read, and later in ones that I conducted myself, uh, people would make up these crazy theories as to how you, you have to go a certain pattern, you have to press the keys very softly, you know, all sorts of strange theories came up uh, that were had nothing to do with how the points were derived at all. And so... So it it was like a superstition, and uh, and that's what got me started. Uh, I later wrote a book uh, on the subject. I've just finished a second book on the subject. So um, so that's how it started. It was a coincidental thing, and I I've always been interested in sort of the quirky things that humans do that are you know not not pathological in any way, not not a, a you know a, a psychological problem, 
but the quirky things we all do, the irrational things that we all do as part of everyday life. So not so much things like, say, OCD or, or things like that, where somebody, they've got that requirement where, oh, I have to turn the doorknob four times to the right before I, I leave the room. You're talking more the weird stuff, like you say, where I've got to follow this exact pattern because if I don't, it won't be lucky. Exactly. That's right. And there is a borderline there between uh, something that is a, a, you know, a me- mental disorder and uh, and, and, and mostly it has to do with the people who have OCD uh, uh, really are not enjoying what they're doing in the moment. It is, they, they are compelled to do it. It's not a happy thing, but, and they're anxious the whole time. Whereas often superstitions, although there's anxiety associated with superstition uh, in everyday life, uh, often the superstition actually makes you feel a little bit better and then you're done with it. It's not like you have to do it 50 times in the way that, uh, that someone with OCD would. And so, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, superstition is very common and, and it is, it, there is a psychology behind it that supports it. So what are some of the most common origins of superstitions? I mean, at some point, somewhere along the line, somebody, something happened because they thought something happened or they didn't do something. Is it a, a, a religious thing? Is it a cultural thing? Where, where do most of these superstitions come from? All of the above. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, so many of them have a, a religious uh, origin to them uh, and, uh, and, or that, or they played a role similar to religion at one time. And actually, actually, in the ancient times, uh, if you called something a superstition, it was likely to be a, a religion that you didn't believe in. Uh, so, so, for example, in early Christianity, uh, uh, actually, the Romans, who still believed in, in their gods, would be called superstitious for, for believing in, in the old panoply of gods. Uh, or, or in Roman times earlier, uh, Jews and Christians were called superstitious because they believed a different religion. Um, so, so it has that pejorative aspect to it and, uh, and so on. But many of the ones that have come back to us that we still uh, use today or hear about today, uh, hopefully you don't use all of them, um, <laughs> they, they, have a religious, they have a religious origin to them. Uh, so, for example, uh, and of course, we have to, I have to say as a caveat before I get going that you know, this, this is not science. These are, these are, this is folklore. And so it's, there's a little bit of speculation. We, you know, the, unless it's written down somewhere where we can see it, we don't know for sure that these are the origins, but, uh, but they seem to be in many cases, uh, the, the agreed upon or the most likely origins. But for example, um, the walking under a ladder, uh, is the origin of that has, uh, has, um, thought been thought to be that it you know that it creates a triangle that suggests the Trinity, and that by by walking through it you disturb it or you know you you violate the the this this you know shape that is reminding uh, a reminder of the Trinity. Uh, similarly, uh, Friday the thirteenth. Now this is I, I hesitate whenever I talk about Friday the thirteenth. I have to like. Uh, make an, another big caveat because because this is probably the most contentious of all superstitions uh, there are several theories about how, where it came from and and i i have 
I have set upon one that I think think is the most well defended. Mm -hmm. uh, but but um, uh, but the but uh, the origin, the most common origin, or the uh, what I think is the strongest story about the origin of the Friday the Thirteenth is the Last Supper. That it's the concept. It started with the concept of three thirteen, a group of thirteen people, or specifically even thirteen people at a table, uh, as being unlucky. And, and of course, you know the idea being that that um, uh, that Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot and and then and then crucified, um, and and then and so for it started out originally as just being thirteen at a table. Uh, eventually, thirteen got sort of freed from the table and and became unlucky in and of itself. Uh, and then once freed from the table, it sort of merged with Fridays. Fridays had always been thought to be unlucky uh, because hangings were done on Friday. Friday was called Hangman's Day. Jeez, I had no uh, idea about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and in fact, it's interesting, I, I, you know, stop me if I'm going on too long, but, but um, there, there were much of, uh, at, the, at the turn of the century, there were a number of Friday the 13th clubs. These were people who were uh, very non-superstitious, and they they wanted to. There was one in Philadelphia and New York. There was one in London, uh, and they wanted to sort of tempt fate and show that it wasn't wasn't an unlucky number. And they would they would deliberately have dinners in which there were thirteen people at a table, and <laughs> they did other things. It was you know it was kind of a fun fun thing. Uh, but they also, in a very serious way, led a campaign uh, to to create the the five day work week and to have Saturday be a day off, uh, thereby making Friday no longer a bad day. Friday, you know, we now have uh, you know we now think of Friday as a as a very good day mm -hmm. uh, because it leads to the weekend. And so so um, it's an interesting side note on that on that story. But I, having told you this, uh, you know, I'm sure that there will be hate mail uh, from people who. There are two other theories uh, that are most common. One is one involves the Knights Templar, which was a crusading knights group of knights during the Crusades that uh, that became very wealthy, and they were in in a big controversy. They were arrested on uh, the 13th day, and some of them ended up being burned at the stake. Uh, and so there's a that that's one theory, mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a th there's a third one that involves uh, Norse mythology that uh, the that there was a group again a group of twelve uh, gods, thirteenth uh, one was Loki who, who the evil god Loki who then uh, instigated a fight that led to the death of the beloved god Balder. Uh -huh. uh, and so, I mean, again, it's God's, uh, that's also another religious origin, uh, in a way. And, uh, but, but, uh, but that one is also not very well supported. And, and so the, in terms of like, uh, records in newspapers and other written sources, the, 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 uh, last supper theory appears to be the strongest one. And 13 really took on a, an entire life of its own, didn't it? I mean, there's office buildings and hotels that don't have 13th floors and airplanes that don't have 13th rows and, and things like that. Right. It, it, it really, never mind just Friday the 13th, it's the number 13 period. Yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about superstition in general is those places where it interacts with the economy. 
in which case it will be uh, it will be uh, you know become an issue because nobody wants to either lose money in the case of a of a bad superstition or gain you know or or fail to make money off of a good one. So so in Western society, the number thirteen is it's true that they are still making elevators today that don't have thirteen uh, floors. And of course, in Vegas, I don't think any of the hotels, no. or very few of the hotels, have have a thirteen floor. Of course, they they do. It's just called the fourteenth floor, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, and and in other cultures, other numbers, uh, you know, in in uh, in Asia and China. Uh, the number four is very unlucky, and so and number eight is is lucky. So, so there are elevators. Any combination with a four um, is thought to be unlucky. So there are elevators. Uh, I've seen a f- one photo of an elevator in Hong Kong that was missing the fourth floor, the thirteenth floor, and the fourteenth floor <laughs> in terms of the buttons. So it gets wow. complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we've talked a little bit about the ladders. We've talked about the number 13. What are some of the more other common superstitions that exist out there? I mean, I know there's there's got to be hundreds of them, but what are some of the real common ones? Well, I mean, here in the West, the, the most common ones are things like black cats, you know, that are supposed to be unlucky. Uh, black cats are are uh, were thought to be uh, associated with witches and and witches were thought to uh, be able to transform themselves into black cats. So, so there was the worry that that um, the you know the, the the black cat you see on the sidewalk might actually be um, might actually be a witch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's that. Um, the, I mean, some of the most popular ones are ones that. Um, that I was actually not as familiar with uh, growing up in the Middle West of the United States as uh, as other people in the world were. So, for example, one of my favorite superstitions is the evil eye, which I had never heard about until quite late in my career. And yet it's a widespread um, superstition in uh, both South America and the Middle East and in Europe. Um, are you familiar with this one? No, not. I mean, you, I've, you know, you've heard the phrase, somebody giving you the evil eye, but not really 100% knowing what that means. Yeah, it's a it's 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 a it's a thing. It, the suggestion is, is that there are apparently malevolent people out in the world who who have the ability to harm you simply by looking in a certain way. And uh, and so uh, as a as a result, uh, there are various ways that that uh, people deal with it, and it has become quite an industry in and of itself uh, because there's jewelry associated with it. Like the that you may have seen Hamsa, this hand-shaped uh, uh, pendant that people mm-hmm. sometimes wear, uh, often with an eye in the middle of it. Right. And there's there's also this thing called a Turkish nazar, which is a again a blue and white, sometimes made out of glass. Uh, blue and white pendant that's quite lovely, uh, and it also is has an eye-like shape to it that is supposed to draw the evil eye away from it or reflect the evil eye back at the perpetrator. <laughs> uh, and so, so uh, you know, it's 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 amazing, and it has. I mean, I don't want to go into too far, but there, but it has various cultural 
differences. So, for example, the way it's dealt with in the, the way you do a counter sort of action to fight against it might be different and is different in the Middle East than it would be, for example, in Italy, where it's also very popular. So uh, it's a, it, I was surprised by it. And it's clearly fear-based. It's, it's, it's typically when you have something of value, often a baby, a new baby, uh, and you fear that for its safety that someone will be jealous uh, or, or envious and, and uh, want to do harm by harming the baby. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting widespread and very old. It's, it's, it's mentioned in the Bible, so it's, it's quite old. And I mean, there's others too. I mean, you know, breaking a mirror, that's always a big one that, that comes up, you know, the seven years bad luck breaking a mirror. And, and that has, uh, again, a fairly old origin to it. Uh, but the interesting thing is that you said seven years, and uh, and that is what most people say now. But over the, over the years, what has happened is, you know, that that it has varied. Some in some cases, you know, in uh, the 19th century or earlier, they might say that someone in that house would die within the next year. That might be the the, the curse. So it's that has wow. varied. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I know. Uh, but. Uh, but they, that's a that's a you know mirrors. We don't we think of them as such simple things now, but they were quite valuable and unusual. There were not in in olden times there were not very many opportunities for people to actually look at their own faces, uh, and they were thought to have somewhat mystical powers. There were there were people who sort of would use them in telling fortunes and so forth, and so th- they've had a sort of magical quality to them all along. And uh, and so breaking one was thought to be, uh, you know, both tied up in the magical aspect of the of the looking glass, but also because it was valuable uh, was one of the reasons why that's thought to have started. Talked a little bit about the different superstitions crossing into different cultures. Are there certain cultures that are more superstitious than others? You know, I get th- I've gotten this question for 20 years or more and I used to sort of punt and say well we all have our levels of superstition and so forth uh but I've changed my view on that and I would I would say and and this is this is relevant to Las Vegas uh I would say that at least in terms of the the everyday part of everyday life uh Asian culture the Chinese are more superstitious than we are and uh and you know the the it does show up in in part I and part of the reason I say that is that it shows up so much in commerce in in uh in th- in the economy so for example uh feng shui the whole concept of feng shui in houses uh and buildings that that a house has to be oriented a certain way in space and the landscaping has to be done a certain way in order for there to be positive energy within the house and to affect the people in the house. And so there are consultants on this. And of course, there is no scientific basis for this. I have to point that out at the beginning, uh, just in case. But there's no scientific basis at all. It's, it's very ancient. It's part of, it's part of you know, a longstanding Chinese culture. Uh, but it really does have an impact on how much people will pay for a house. Uh, and so it's constantly, uh, uh, you know, something you have to deal with as, as are these numbers. You know, there are studies that show that, that, um, 
that people will, in a housing boom, there's one study, I'll just quote one statistic for you. In a housing boom in Hong Kong, people are willing to pay, we're shown in one study, willing to pay 3% more for an apartment that had an eight in the floor number. So, so if it was on the 18th floor or the 28th floor or the eighth floor, they would pay on average across all the apartments, they would, they would pay uh, 3% more for that, for that place. And similarly, uh, you know, there are studies that show that uh, apartments on the fourth floor, 14th floor uh, go for less money uh, because because they're thought to be unlucky. Um, and, you know, so so it's it's pervasive in everyday life uh, uh, in Chinese in Chinese culture. It's interesting that you bring up the the housing thing, because I, I used to live in a condominium that I was trying to sell. This was years ago. And, um, first of all, the address was six, three, five. So it adds up to 14. So uh-huh. I was screwed there on, and I did have a, a, uh, a real estate agent that contacted our realtor that he said, I had Asian clients that were looking to buy. And then I showed them the address and they were done. And so that was, that was number one. But then number two, the, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned the Feng Shui because the, the stairway to go upstairs as you came in the front door of the condo was right there. And I was told again by my realtor, I will never be able to sell this to an Asian client because the Feng Shui in their mind, because the stairway terminates at the door, all of the fortunes go right out the front door of the home. Yes. There's a lot of talk about fortunes and coming in in the house and out of the house. And, you know, there are feng shui coins that you can buy that will somehow help, you know, with all of that and so forth. And so so it's it is a big it is a big issue. And, it, and, it, and as I say, you know, uh, think about it. You know, we have we we you know are aware of things like black cats and the number 13 and so forth. But they they don't really affect commerce uh, and everyday life in quite the same way. Uh, as they, they they appear to in Asian culture, so so um, so that that's that's what I would say about that. I think I find it fascinating. I mean, I think it's just it's 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 quite interesting. There there is um, uh, a a lot of research right now in, in in we're kind of in a boom of research on superstition in the Chinese market. You know, because of the huge expanse of the Chinese economy in the last few decades. Uh, and they have money and 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 they are buying things like everyone else. And so so there's a lot of interest in how you can. Uh, and I, I, ha- I have I think I have some ethical qualms about this because I'm not sure we should really be encouraging people to be superstitious. But at the, but at the same time, they, they definitely are doing research these days on how to use or not use superstition to make more money. You know, the, you know, for example, um Red is a color associated with good luck uh, in Chinese culture. Wedding dresses are often red. And if you think about it, you see a lot of red. Uh, and so, you know, they, they do studies to find out whether if you make your product that you're selling, your widget red instead of another color, you know, how will that affect the customers and so forth? So it's it's fascinating. Does all this research maybe explain all of the bright red 
triple eight slot machines that I'd be seeing in Las Vegas? It could, it could very well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, to, to take a look and see which ones are more popular and, and you, you may have your own answer. Interesting. I assume there's a lot of athletes and actors and singers and celebrities that all have their own superstitions that they follow. Yes, there are. I, I have not studied this as much as other things, but in my first book on superstition called Believing in Magic, the Psychology of Superstition, um, I talked a lot about a fellow who's now retired, but, but a baseball player named Wade Boggs, uh, who was extremely superstitious, and he believed, he was also a very good hitter. He, was a, he played for the Yankees and for um, the Red Sox. And he uh, was voted into the Hall of Fame on the first ballot, and uh, he he um, you know made several batting titles. But he believed ever since high school, he believed that he hit better after eating chicken, and so he ate chicken every single day. I mean, there's no way to know whether he hit better or not uh, eating chicken because he never avoided chicken; he always ate it. And so, so that who who knows, right? But he believed he believed that it it get, got him more hits, and he had lots of other superstitions as well. He had a, like a four hour long ritual that he went through before each game, and so forth. And and those kinds of rituals bef- before play are very common uh, among athletes. Um, there's also a rumor. Again, this is stuff that's hard to verify, but there's a rumor that that Michael Jordan, when he played basketball for the Chicago Chicago Bulls, would would wear a pair of his uh, college shorts underneath his Chicago Bulls shorts as a as a, a good luck thing. And I always like to point out as a sort of a different kind of example um, that Taylor Swift was born on December 13th. That's her birth date. And for her, uh, 13 is her, she has claimed it as her lucky number. Uh, and, uh, and so she, she doesn't do it, I think, as much as she used to in the past, but she, I am uh, told that she used to write the number 13 on her wrist, uh, especially before performing. Uh, and, you know, she has other rituals that she did. I think her Twitter handle has, uh, is Taylor Swift 13. Uh, and, um, so she's, she's quite enamored of it. And it turned out that this, her last, her 30th birthday, which I think was just this past December was actually on Friday the 13th. So, oh wow, yeah. So, so, you know, you have to keep in mind when it comes to these number superstitions that there are going to be babies born on those days. And for those people, it's going to be one of the happiest days in the year. And, uh, and, and, you know, even, even in, uh, uh, you know, in Hong Kong, if a baby's born on the 14th of the month, I'm sure it's going to be a happy day for that family. So, well, and I know actors, actors and performers always have all these different superstitions. I mean, there's the classic, you can never tell somebody good luck. It's, it's right, always right. break a leg. Right. You don't say good luck. Break a leg. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. And there's, and there, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the theater, uh, there are a couple of famous. Of course, the other thing is the is the um, you know the Scottish play. You do not if you're if you do not mention Macbeth by name. Oops, I just did it. Um, <laughs> you know because because that's supposed to be bad luck. And the thing about Macbeth, I, there's again this is contentious as to as to why it um, why that one developed. Um, 
Macbeth has is a very violent play with a lot of sword fighting. Uh, I think it may have the most deaths on stage of any of Shakespeare's plays, uh, or, or you know, don't quote me on that, but it's it's close, if not if not exact. And so, um, so that that may be part of the reason because you know the possibility of accidents while you're playing on stage. Um, but I've heard another theory that involved a song that they used to sing, uh, you know, when it was played in the past. So, so I'm not sure exactly what the origin of that one is. The other, the other theater one that I like is um, not whistling backstage. Mm-hmm. A- and this is an example. This is an example of a, a superstition that actually had at one time a rational origin to it. Uh, which is that in the old days, um, you know, the they didn't have walkie-talkies to talk to each other. You know, the crew on stage did not, and so they would be the the people who were hired to to move scenery, and often scenery involved just like a a canvas backdrop that had to be rolled up like a like a shade, and then another one put down. Um, you know, many of the people employed for that were sailors, you know, who were good with ropes and pulleys, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they would communicate with each other by whistling, uh, so that they knew when to do certain things and what to do backstage. And so the, so if, if you were just mindlessly whistling backstage, you might end up with a piece of scenery on top of your head, uh, because it would, it would be, you know, confused by the, the crew. So that that was the original origin, but it's of course it's continued, and mm-hmm. and not you know it lasts beyond its rational beginnings. So we've hit on this a, a couple of times already, and you've said this, but I'm going to ask the question anyways. Is there any science at all to back up <laughs> any of these superstitions at all? <laughs> well, the the short answer is no, uh, but the longer answer is that that uh, there could be there there's a potential for possibilities in very specific circumstances, and and so now I'm speaking to your your Las Vegas audience, right? Uh, when I say that, you know, when you play the shot the slot machine, any slot machine, you or you play roulette. Uh, or any of the games that are purely chance, right, where you're not actually involved at all, uh, include, and I, I would put, although, I mean, obviously, for some games, there are betting strategies, even if they're pure, purely chance, like craps, I don't actually, I have, I confess, I don't understand craps, but, but I understand it involves dice. Right? Yes, that much and, I know, and, too. That's, that's about right. as much as I know as well. <laughs> okay, so there's nothing you can do to make the die roll you know, the way you want them to, uh, that, that, that is the scientific fact. Um, but, the, but here's the, here's the hedge on that, right? So, so superstition will not help you in those contexts. And yet, and yet they're very common. You know, you pointed, uh, just as an aside, you mentioned the, the people tapping the, the screens of the oh. slot machines and so forth. Um, the ballet people who make those, some of those slot machines, I don't know whether they've actually produced them yet, but they have patented a special kind of slot machine that would actually respond to those superstitious taps on the screen, that they would give some kind of a feedback in order to, again, to try to monopolize on that and, and encourage the, the people to continue doing it. This, 
the idea being that people who who do that tapping and if they're rewarded it for it in some way that they'll keep playing they'll they'll play more so uh so it's not they're aware of this stuff but there's nothing there's nothing at a at a at a slot machine or a or a roulette table that that will help you now the if you are actually engaged in a skilled activity and here i think the better analogy is theater or sports not so much the casino um but if you're engaged in a in a skilled activity um it seems logical at least it's it's possible right it, it, there is a possibility that there would be a psychological benefit that the that the superstition would give you you know a a a feeling that you've done something else that you've added to your to your circumstances and that that psychological feeling would lead to better performance right would lead to better uh better hitting on the ball field or batting or whatever mm-hmm. um and so so that seems logical to me and a few studies have tried to show that and i have to confess that the results have so far been mixed i mean that may be the fault of the scientists that they haven't they haven't done the right kind of studies yet but um but so far we can't say for sure that even that even that works so uh so it's it's still an unanswered question i would say there've been some positive studies and some negative studies so so we shall see but but there's no question like we, people are superstitious right and it's been going on for centuries so something must support it uh, uh, my guess is that that it is the immediate feeling that you feel better doing it um and, and whether that leads to better performance is still we're not sure about that the only superstition that i've come across for myself in a casino is that my wife can't be anywhere near me she's she's got this <laughs> This pall of, of, I don't know, bad luck and darkness that hangs around her in the casino. And one of these recent trips, we sat down at a machine and I put some cash in and I, she was standing there watching me and, and I was losing. And as she started walking away, I started winning again. She came back and I started losing again. So (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know if that's superstition or if that's just bad luck or what that is. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's not a scientific test, so uh, so we'll have to see. <laughs> you know, the test would be to have her stand there, but in such a way that you can't see that she's there, and have her, you know, go back. That I mean, here's here's the study I would design. Right, is that she's there, but you can't see her. Right. Uh, and then have her move back and forth and see how your luck changes. So. <laughs> I'll meet you in the casino and we'll set something up. I don't know if I have enough money to do that scientific test, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about that. We'll have to get a grant or something. Hey, let's get working on that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, Stuart, you mentioned you do have a couple of books. Uh, you've got one uh, currently available and one on the way. Let's talk about those a bit. Yes, the the book that I'm probably most known for and that has been out and is out now is called Believing in Magic: The Psychology of Superstition, and it's all about um, it's all about uh, you know why people are superstitious despite the fact that it seems you know sort of uh, a paradox in this scientific world, um, and so that's one. And then one that's just now coming out, uh, it'll be available. Uh, in North America uh, in April 
1st, I believe it is. And it'll actually be available in the UK and on Kindle on the 23rd of this month. So, and it's called Superstition, a very short introduction. And, um, and it is, uh, it was an interesting book to write because I am a psychologist, uh, you know, I, a scientist, but, uh, but this was a book about the whole thing, about the beginnings of superstition. There's a lot of history in there. There's a lot of the questions that you were asking about the origins of superstitions and various superstitions throughout the world. So it's a much more general uh, book, and it's quite thin. It's a, it's a, it's the title is a very short introduction. So I, I think people might enjoy it. Excellent. Well, Stuart, I appreciate you taking time to uh, to sit and chat with me today about uh, all this uh, this stuff. This was this was a blast. I really enjoyed hearing about all of this. That's great. It was fun for me, too. Thanks for inviting me. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy of Stewart's books, Believing in Magic, The Science of Superstition, and Superstition, A Very Short Introduction, or you want to learn more about Stuart and the world of superstition and irrational behavior, visit his website at stuartvise.com. You can also find those links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. that wraps up yet another episode of the podcast if you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter or you're looking for suggestions for your own vegas vacation on where to stay where to eat what to see or what shows to check out please feel free to reach out to me via facebook twitter or instagram at jeff does vegas you can also drop me an email directly at jeff at jeff in the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 52 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. <laughs>